Well, it's been quite a week, starting with the big game on Sunday, then on Tuesday, the State of the Union address, and of course, the Chiefs parade and the presidential impeachment trial acquittal, ongoing concerns about the coronavirus. It's been a big week. And in the midst of all of this, I've consumed everything Esther. (laughs) from Veggie Tales to uh, other articles, as much as I could fit in and digest uh, in a week's worth of study. So Esther is a curious book, um, and it feels to me curiously relevant for our time, but I'll I'll let you be the judge uh, of that. So for today, I'm going to do my best to summarize the story uh, For some, it will be a review. Uh, Others, it it might be the first time hearing or or digging into this story. So first, a warning. There are lots of twists and turns in these ten chapters in the Hebrew Bible. There is dark humor. There is lots of violence, shows of power, and there are questionable outcomes. Felt a little to me like Game of Thrones reading it as an adult, or at least uh, a soap opera. Studying Esther uh, is a good reminder that many biblical characters that we prop up to be heroes and heroines are as flawed as they are faithful. I kind of love that about our sacred texts. The good news is that maybe we have a shot at seeing our particular iteration of flawed and faithful in the pages of the good book. So here's a recap. Buckle your seatbelts. And this is going to be a longer sermon than usual. So be ready. So Esther was an orphan 500 years or so before the time of Jesus. I think we can safely assume that Jesus knew of Esther, had the scrolls of Esther read to him as a young Hebrew boy. Every year during Purim, the Jewish holiday that commemorates uh, Esther, he probably studied it and wrestled with it uh, as a young boy and then later during his adult ministry. And I'll come back to Jesus later. So back to Esther. She's an orphan. She was a descendant of the Jewish people who were rounded up in Jerusalem and forced to relocate in Persia, in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. So the story of Esther is set about a hundred years after that forced relocation called the Babylonian Exile. Many Jews stayed in the capital city in Susa after this forced relocation, and they remained religious cultural outsiders, maybe even outcasts in this Persian capital city. So Esther is now a young woman, and she's among these Jewish outsiders in Susa. And together with her family member, cousin Mordecai, who cared for her and raised her as his own daughter after Esther's parents died. So we have Mordecai and Esther. Another important figure in the story of Esther is the king of Persia, 
portrayed as an insecure mess of a cruel leader. And the king's official Haman, Haman, who is a cunning villain. I'm going to let you make modern-day comparisons on your own. There's also Queen Vashti. I'll return to her in a second. So the book opens with the king of Persia throwing elaborate banquet feasts that last 180 days. So think the most opulent house party you can imagine for all his officials and ministers. In the final week-long feast, this is what scripture says, drinking was without restraint, for the king had given orders to all the officials of his palace to do as each desired. Why was the king throwing this opulent party? The scripture says simply to display the great wealth of his kingdom, the splendor and pomp of his majesty. Well, meanwhile, Queen Vashti is holding her own banquet for the women in a separate location. She holds her own in more ways than one. On the seventh day of this party, the king already drunk with wine He wants to show off the crown of his possessions, his beautiful queen Vashti. He commands her to appear with crown to show off her beauty. Incredibly, Vashti refuses to come at the king's command. There's no explanation given for this momentous defiance. She was most likely, as were most women, groomed for compliance. But here she exerts her will, and she imposes a restraint on the king, whose will is tantamount to law. Well, the king, as you can imagine, is enraged by this, by this defiance. His anger burns within him, the scripture says. He consults with his officials and lawyers and advisors. They express fear that other wives and women might follow suit. There would be no end to contempt and wrath. So they advise the king that as punishment, Vashti should never be allowed to come before the king again. And she should no longer be the queen And they suggest that a decree go out to the whole vast kingdom that all women should give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Every man should be master of his own house from this point forward. So that happens. Well, once the anger wears off, maybe when he gets sober again, the king finds himself a little lonely Once again, he is advised maybe he should hold a a beauty pageant of sorts. Maybe he should gather all the virgins in the kingdom and the palace to vie for Vashti's vacated place. So here's where Esther steps in. Esther, remember, a Jewish woman, is rounded up for this beauty pageant. No one in the palace knows that Esther is Jewish. Mordecai, her cousin, tells her not to tell anyone. This seems significant. The the name Esther in Hebrew is Hadassah, which means hidden. Okay, Esther, as a Persian name, means star. 
But in Hebrew, it means hidden. Esther conceals, hides her identity as a Jewish woman. While Esther and the rest of the women who were rounded up received 12 months of cosmetic and perfume treatment, and only those who delighted the king were invited back. Esther finds favor with the king, and she basically wins this pageant. And the king loves uh, Esther more than all the other women, and he promotes her as the new queen of Persia. Again, this whole time, he does not know she's Jewish. Persian kings could only marry women from certain noble Persian families. So we are only in the middle of chapter two. (laughs) The soap opera continues, and I'll speed it up. Esther's uncle Mordecai is obviously concerned for Esther, his cousin Esther, and he finds a way to check on her and how she's faring every day. And in so doing, he overhears two royal guards talking about a plot underway to kill the king. Well, he finds a way, Mordecai finds a way to tell Esther, who tells the king using Mordecai's name. So Mordecai gets the credit, right, for, for saving the king's life, which the king will need reminding of later in the book. He's too drunk half the time to remember such detail. Well, meanwhile, the king's right-hand man, Haman, remember this cunning villain, he's elevated to the highest position, And in turn, Haman demands that everyone in the kingdom kneel to him to honor his great position. But Mordecai, a Jew, he refuses. He refuses to bow down to Haman. Well, this infuriates Haman and many with him. And when Haman finds out that Mordecai is Jewish... He persuades the king to enact a a decree to destroy all the Jewish people. Bit of an overreaction, but here is what he says about the Jews. There is a certain people scattered and separated among the peoples in your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws. So, over drinks, the king and Haman decide the date of the Jewish annihilation. Haman and the king basically roll the dice, which is called poor in Hebrew. We'll come back to that. The date by rolling the dice is set for the annihilation, and the word starts to spread in the kingdom, throwing the whole city of Susa into confusion. Well, what follows are a number of servant-delivered messages between Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai challenges Esther to save her people. Esther argues back that the king could have her put to death for doing so. And then comes Mordecai's message back to Esther, and this is probably the most well-known line of, of Esther. Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Who knows, Mordecai says, 
Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Esther is the Jews' only hope. Esther resolves to help even though it could mean her death. She says, if I perish, I perish. Well, then Esther asked Mordecai and her fellow Jews to hold a fast for three days and three nights to pray as she plots her next move. And this is when all the great reversals start to happen in Esther. Esther is now the one holding the banquets. She's sort of running the show, always a step ahead of the drunken men around her. And she starts to enact a rather dubious plan. And for the sake of time, I'm going to basically summarize what happens next by saying this. (laughs) Esther's dubious plan works. In part because at just the right moment, maybe this is the hidden hand, hand of God, at just the right moment, the king remembers. He has someone in the palace read him the minutes of the of the events in the palace and he remembers that Mordecai had saved his life earlier and just at this moment Esther capitalizes on this and she uses this time to reveal her and Mordecai's identity as Jews it takes a while for this king to connect the dots But soon he realizes that his treasured, beautiful Queen Esther would be killed by the decree ordered earlier. Takes him some time. He's rather dense. Again, the king's anger burns within him. And in an incredible reversal, Haman is now the target of the king's anger. How dare Haman plot to kill his beautiful queen? So the king decrees Haman to be killed on the very instrument of death that Haman had hoped to use to kill Mordecai. So Mordecai is then elevated to take Haman's place as the king's right-hand man. Haman's downfall Mordecai's rise to power. Well, together, the king and Mordecai now commission a counter decree. They would allow the Jews in the area to defend themselves against anyone who would try to kill them on the day that was going to be Annihilation Day. I guess in those days you couldn't reverse a decree, but you could issue a counter decree. So the day comes, and the Jewish people are ready, and they defend themselves, and they triumph. They are rescued from annihilation. End of story. (laughs) There is a little more. As in, there is more bloodshed. The Jews, the story goes, struck down all their enemies, Well over 75,000 Persians were killed, starting with Haman's entire family, his ten sons. And when the killing was over, they made a day of feasting 
and gladness. And the story ends with the Jews, all thanks to Esther and Mordecai, enjoying a new status in this capital city and beyond. So they went from being almost annihilated to rising in political power. Again, all thanks to the brave Esther, who did not remain quiet for such a time as this. Well, I'm leaving out a lot of detail. You can read it, all ten chapters, if you want. I made maybe some interpretive choices, too, in the, in the summarizing. But here we are, thousands of years later, from when this story is set. The world has changed so much. The status and power of Jewish people have cha- has changed so much. And it is different for Jews depending on the region of the world we are talking about. And in one month from today or from now, many Jews around the world will celebrate Purim. This is a two-day holiday that takes his, its name after the dice, poor, the dice used to determine the date of the Jewish annihilation, Purim. Jews will gather and read the scrolls of Esther. They will celebrate her and Mordecai's bravery and their deliverance as a people, and they will poke fun at Haman and the king. Well, I have never been to a Purim uh, service or festival. I have read a lot um, and heard a lot about the traditions. I imagine it's different from synagogue to synagogue. But from what I understand, uh, Purim is a holiday of excesses and extremes. Revolves around divine laughter, feasting, lots of drinking, (laughs) subverting everyday identities and pushing the boundaries of temperate behavior. It's a celebration for focusing on the body, on food, on drink, on clothing and costumes, the world of the physical. Often the story of Esther during Purim is acted out in pageants and elaborate dramas. Again, it's time to poke fun at the king and Haman. Well, I hesitate to say much more uh, about how modern-day Jews relate to this story all these uh, years later, as I'm sure it varies so much from community to community. Similarly, how modern-day Christians relate to this story of Esther varies so much. So what I'm about to share is in no way representative of how Christians have or or should relate to Esther. But for today, I wanted to share what I found to be some some, um, provocative thoughts by a woman named Rachel Held Evans. Rachel... uh, was three years younger than me. She died a year ago um, at the age of 37 um, from what started out as an infection. 
She has written many books and have really appreciated her writing over the years. For Rachel, Esther, from the very first time she heard the story, provided her a profound story of resistance. It sparked her imagination as a little girl, and it stirred her faith until the moment she died. It reminded her, and I quote her here, (laughs) that a misogynistic king running a dangerously dysfunctional superpower is nothing new and nothing God can't handle. The king in Esther, Rachel says, and I quote her, turns out to be little more than a pathetic puppet coaxed and coddled by advisors, eunuchs, and villains, ultimately controlled and outsmarted by who? A Jewish orphan and her cousin. The story of Esther pulls back the veil on the empire to reveal that behind the golden chairs and the drunken patriarchal edicts are a bunch of insecure, weak men whose attempts to puff themselves up only make them look silly. It is an empty, foolish power. The emperor has no clothes, she says. And she's not done. (laughs) She argues that what Esther shows us whether we are identify as Jews or Christians, what Esther shows us is that while Persia rolls the dice, God holds history. Esther speaks of the hope that God, often with unlikely people, the help of unlikely people, orphans, can outwit even the most unpredictable and corrupt regimes to deliver and preserve the vulnerable. So, she says, Rachel says, maybe a little biblically inspired dark comedy is just what we need for such a time as this. Rachel's own voice, an example of resistance, will no doubt live on. Well, here's something else I've been thinking about this week, and thanks to the story of Esther, and and I'll close with some of these thoughts. There are a lot of vulnerable people today, like Esther, who feel that they have to hide or conceal their true identities. Whether it is their religious identity, their cultural or racial identities, their sexual or gender identity. So many people, and and we may include ourselves in this, so many people today fear not fitting in or worse, being discriminated against, or being the target of violence and harassment. The worldly powers and forces that are asking us to kneel, bow down, and conceal our identities, 
This is significant still today. A couple years ago, I heard a sermon on Esther preached by a woman named Anna Carter Florence, a professor of preaching at a Christian seminary. And in this sermon, I remember listening with just tears rolling down my face. She asked us to think about some profound questions, such as, why are issues of identity, again, whether we are talking about racial, gender, sexuality, religious, why are issues of identity so often at the root of violence? Acts of violence. Why do so many people still today feel that they have to hide or conceal who they are? Why do so many people still today, like Esther, have to weigh the agonizing risks of revealing their identity in order to blend in or not stick out to avoid acts of violence. So, for, so maybe we can think about Esther as a story that invites us to think about these constructed identities and the violence all around those constructions. Anna Carter Florence, who I mentioned earlier, asked us to read Esther more confessionally asking ourselves what remains hidden in or for us? What parts of ourselves have we suppressed out of fear? And how are we suppressing others or preventing those around us from revealing more of who they are? I think such important questions to ask while studying Esther. Well, I said earlier that Jesus most likely grew up hearing and appreciating the scrolls of Esther. We don't have on record what he thought about her or the story, her story. But in about a month, on March 1, we will begin the season of Lent. And we will travel with Jesus on his way to another big city, Jerusalem. And along the way, we will read and study his encounters with such a variety of people in a variety of circumstances, with identities very different than his. I'll speak for myself and say that I so value the New Testament stories these encounters between Jesus and people across differences. It will give us an ongoing opportunity to reflect on the violence often perpetrated across those differences. And of course, we learn from Jesus a more loving way through and among those differences. So with all of this in mind, we'll turn to the hymn that we have been singing throughout this series, uh, one I have come to, to love and appreciate, number 316. 
Afterwards, we're going to hold a, a moment of silent reflection for us to think again. What remains hidden in us? What parts of ourselves are we longing to share more fully with the world? Let's sing.